So we're at the point now where health officials are saying that the only way to slow the spread of COVID-19 is through social distancing. So to help with that, a lot of businesses have closed, events are canceled, a lot of us are working from home and avoiding seeing our friends. But the thing is, in order for us to have any kind of impact and get back to our normal lives, experts are stressing that we have to do it properly. We know from other jurisdictions that social distancing works. But just like any other medicine or treatment, it has to be applied appropriately, right, in the right dose for the right amount of time. I know a lot of us are looking for ways to see our friends while still being responsible. But before you make a move, listen to this episode. My guest today is Jason Tetro, also known as the Germ Guy. He's a scientist and host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast. And we're going to talk about why social distancing is important and how to do it right. From Global News, I'm Tamara Kendacker, and you're listening to Wait, There's More. Jason, hi. Thanks so much for doing this. So I have a lot of questions for you, but let's start with how COVID-19 is transmitted. So what I've heard is droplets. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, so droplets are these small but visible uh, little, um, literally droplets, uh, that you essentially push out of you whenever you have a cough, or a sneeze. Well, those are droplets that essentially carry viruses if you happen to be sick and not just necessarily with COVID-19, but pretty much any kind of virus. So what you want to do is you want to be aware of those droplets because if they happen to get uh, either into your respiratory tract, your nose or your mouth, or onto your hands, and then you're going to touch yourself with those now contaminated hands, uh, or onto surfaces where you can pick them up from uh, essentially, you know, subway poles, that type of thing, and then contaminate your hands and then contaminate uh, your face. I mean, it's all sort of revolving around that droplet. And so the whole point is somehow to be able to be either aware of the droplets or to prevent them from getting out in the first place. There's this new study I saw that showed that The coronavirus can remain viable and infectious in droplets in the air for hours and on surfaces for days. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, there are laboratory tests. Uh, We used to do those as well when I was working in the laboratory. So what you do is you take a drum. uh, It's very similar to your dryer drum, except it's sideways. And what you do is you roll it around and then you mist into it. And essentially that mist contains viruses. And then what you do is you take a look in that drum to see just how long the viruses are going to be staying in there. That's where you get that three hours. Uh, When you talk about surfaces, what you're doing is you're taking regular cell culture media and then you're putting it onto surfaces and you have virus in some of them and you find out just how long you'll be able to pick up that virus. Now, in both of these cases, they're laboratory controlled studies. Are they reflective of what happens in the real world? Of course not. Because as we just said, droplet infection is those drops that are coming out. Like when you see a sneeze, they have weight. They will fall within 30 to 45 seconds, usually, to some kind of surface or the ground. And as for the air being contaminated afterwards, well, that's not really the case. Okay. And so what I wanted to know when I heard that the virus can survive in the air for 
up to three hours is, does this mean, for example, if someone sneezes or coughs outside my apartment door and then I walk out outside like two hours later, could I potentially still get infected because I may be walking into droplets that are still hanging in the air? But you're saying no, because the droplets have weight and they're probably going to just drop to the ground. Exactly. And you have to understand why this research was done. You see, when SARS hit Toronto, there was something very, very weird happening. And that was, we could actually detect the virus in other rooms. We were wondering what was going on. And what it turned out to be was, if you have a patient who is on a ventilator, essentially they are getting assisted breathing. That air that's coming back out isn't pushed out in droplets. It's not a sneeze. It's not a cough. It's actually done in an aerosol format. And so it's a much finer spray, a much finer mist. And if you get that into a ventilation stream, and there are all sorts of uh, computerized designs now that literally focus on this, you can see how an aerosol can go from a ventilator into an HVAC system and possibly even into another room to infect somebody else without anybody even being aware of it. Or it can possibly infect a healthcare worker who doesn't have proper masks or respiratory protection uh, because they don't believe that there's any risk. And this is where we start getting into why these studies are being done. Unfortunately, because they're being published in these rapidly accessible hubs where anybody can read them, unfortunately, they're being misinterpreted. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing such fear now when it comes to airborne as well as surface spread. Okay, so to be clear, COVID-19 is not airborne. Not airborne at all. As for the surfaces, well, what happens is that when it's wet, all those viruses are really viable, really infectious, and they can do some damage. However, as it dries out over the next two to three hours, what ends up happening is a lot of those viruses end up losing their ability to infect. They simply just get bent out of shape, literally. And so the tighter or viral load, if you will, goes down. And it may go down past what we call the minimal infectious dose. In other words, the amount that you're going to need to actually cause an infection. Now, I usually say that within the first three hours, you should be very careful. After that to about a day, you probably can pick them up if you have a much more vigorous contact uh, or a longer contact. And then after that day towards the two days, you're probably getting to a point where you still probably pick up virus, but it may not be as dangerous. And so that's one of the reasons why when you start thinking about disinfecting and cleaning that it's becoming more regular so that we can get in before that, you know, two to three hour uh, time has, has happened. And more importantly, for people who are out, you know, it, it makes it very easy for you to realize that use of hand sanitizer or hand washing is incredibly important. And especially if you're wiping down, say, shopping cart handles or something to make sure that you're doing that, because if you are in a high traffic area, you are within those two to three hours. What we're being told is that the best way to contain the spread of COVID-19 is through social distancing. And I want to talk about one example that made it really clear to me the dangers of not doing that. And that was with patient 31 in South Korea. Oh, yes, the uh, super spreader. In Daegu itself, a city of millions, the streets are empty after dozens caught the virus in a church from a 61-year-old woman known as Patient 31. 
Officials call it a super-spreading event, as many of the South Korean cases can be traced back to her. There was a woman in Korea. She was just a, you know, an average everyday person. And then what ended up happening was that as a result of a car accident, she ended up actually going into a hospital. And at that point, they essentially said that maybe she should be tested for the coronavirus. Um, you know, she had some of the symptoms, the high fever and that type of thing. Well, instead of doing that, <laughs> well, she went out for lunch. Um, and then she sort of went off to other areas. Uh, she was, you know, attending churches. She, she just basically was getting involved in crowds. And as a result of that, unbeknownst to her, she actually was positive. She ended up infecting a whole bunch of people. Right. So up until mid-February in South Korea, they thought that they had the situation under control. So they had 30 cases and most of them were people who had come from Wuhan or people who'd been in close contact with people who tested positive until this patient, patient 31, who ended up going to church twice and went to a buffet. And now she's apparently linked with 80 percent of the cases in South Korea. So the numbers soared in those days where she hadn't been tested and she was kind of walking around the city and doing her thing. Uh, yeah, this isn't the only story that's like that. Um, I mean, think about it. Uh, in Wuhan, in Hubei province, they really had this virus under control. And then January 18th, they had the Wuhan festival where they had 40,000 families. How many you know, people were actually at this? And nobody was being told that this virus could be spread from person to person. And so as a result, they went ahead with this festival. And then four days later, when people really started coming down with this all over, they had to shut down not just the province, but eventually the country. This is the type of thing that happens all the time. The thing is that South Korea is probably the only place on the earth who has such an effective contact tracing mechanism in place because they basically test everybody, doesn't matter, all get tested. And if you do happen to be you know, infected, they trace back your movements and then they tell others about your movements so that we have a really good understanding of how this could all happen. But this is just simply a very good example of something that happens every single day and every single year. It's just that this year we have COVID-19 instead of regular flu or common cold viruses. Right, so all these examples just to reiterate, show the importance of social distancing. And I guess the moral of these stories is that for now, we need to stay indoors and avoid large crowds as much as possible. Well, I think right now what people need to understand is that the social distancing practices are absolutely necessary. Now, the reason that we're going to such a huge extent is not necessarily because of the virus itself. It's because of us. It's because of our demographics. You see, this virus is, it's more of a problem with people who are elderly, those who have these pre-existing conditions. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to protect these individuals. And just one other thing that you really should understand. When you look at the demographics of people who are in the highest risk category, you're going to see a heck of a lot more of them in a place like Italy than you do in South Korea. And as a result of that, 
those people are probably going to be sicker and they're going to need more medical attention. Well, unfortunately, there's only so many beds in the ICU. There's only so many ventilators. Mr. Speaker, communities across Canada are already reporting concerns about uh, potential shortages of critical equipment like ventilators. Uh, this is a vital piece of medical equipment for managing symptoms of the disease. In countries like Italy, when cases spiked, local resources were overwhelmed. And as a result, as we've heard in Italy, people are having to decide who gets to live and who unfortunately has to pass on. We never want that. And so that is why staying home is so important during this time. Right. So for people who are still going out and saying that they're healthy and their immune systems are strong and they're not worried about catching a mild case of COVID-19, we're doing this and we're going to these lengths to practice social distancing because we're trying to be good citizens. And, and that's what it comes down to is we are doing this to be able to help everybody from high risk all the way down to low risk. If we were essentially not doing this, then there would be a very good likelihood that a significant proportion of our population, in this case, those who are elderly, those who have these pre-existing conditions, possibly could be either infected or even worse, be required to go to hospitals. And even worse than that, may have to face the decision of life and death, not as a result of the fact that people can fight this virus, but more because there's not enough beds. Lots of us this week are trying to practice social distancing, but there's still a lot of confusion around how to do it properly. So I want to give people some basic do's and don'ts, but can we start with a basic definition? When we're talking about social distancing, what we're essentially saying is that those droplets that we talked about at the top, those can only travel a certain amount of distance before they fall to the ground because of gravity. That turns out to be about six feet. So we want to try and maintain about a six foot distance. Now, we've heard that one meter may be enough, which is about three feet. So it's a little less stringent. But by that same respect, if you're not three feet away from somebody, then if they happen to be sick or you happen to be sick with this, there's a chance that spreading could occur. So the basic rule of social distancing is keeping a three to six foot distance from other people. That's right. So I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. If I want to practice social distancing properly, should I even be going to small gatherings at my friends' places? Like say they want to have a board game night and it'll be like four or five people. This is more of a personal decision call because in social distancing, I mean, just the board game itself is not six feet away. But the thing is, is that in order for us, like I said, to have some kind of ability to have social gatherings, uh, there has to be some sort of understanding that if you are gathering, then there is going to be some kind of risk. If you can maintain that distance, that is great. We know people get together. We know people will break that three to six foot barrier. So the reality then becomes you have to be aware of who you're with and also if anybody happens to come down with a cold, flu, or in this particular case, COVID-19, that they essentially notify everybody else so that you can then make sure that everybody is aware that there's a possibility that they could be not only infected, but possibly a spreader like we saw with uh, patient 31 in South Korea. 
is there any context in which it's totally safe to see your friends? Yeah, I mean, the beautiful thing about being out in the great outdoors is that you don't really have to worry too, too much about a human density. But more importantly, you can have that distance between each other. But again, you know, if you happen to be with a loved one uh, going on a walk, the likelihood is, is that you're breaking that three foot distance constantly anyways. So it's not that big of a deal. But if you happen to be out, say, you know, with a good friend you haven't seen for like five years or something, then yeah, you know, you might have that discussion. Is it okay to be in close proximity with someone if we've both been self-isolating for 14 days and neither of us has developed any symptoms? If both of you have essentially had 14 days, there have been no symptoms, there's been no history of contact with anybody who may have had this virus, then the likelihood is that there is really no worry. And so in that context, there shouldn't be any problem for the two of you to get together. Now, that is a personal decision that should be made by you and your friend. The reason it's not being sort of escalated to uh, announcing uh, from a podium is that people will take that and start playing their own games of risk versus benefit and finding far more benefit versus the risk And unfortunately, that can lead down a dangerous path where there actually is infection happening. But like patient 31 thought, well, eh, I'm okay. There's really no need for me to go get tested. The same logic, I guess, would apply to going to see your family. Like if if I want to go see my parents and I haven't seen them in a while, it's a personal choice, I guess, for me to see them if all of us have been self-isolating for 14 days and none of us have developed symptoms. Exactly. Again, We just want to make sure that nobody takes advantage or starts abusing this so that they essentially say, oh, well, I've been fine for, you know, well, 10 days. That's good enough. A lot of bars and restaurants are now closed, but they're still doing food delivery and takeout. Is it okay to eat that food and accept deliveries? Oh, yeah. I don't see any reason why not. I mean, the likelihood is that uh, food safety laws and regulations are are going to prevent any kind of uh, transfer of uh, virus onto your food. And if you've got hot food anyway, well, the virus is not going to survive on the hot dishes. Honestly, there's really no risk to any kind of takeout or delivery service. And uh, if you do want to keep that sort of six foot distance away, you can still make that happen. What about when I have to go get groceries? What precautions should I be taking? Well, I think you should be maintaining that uh, three to six foot distance if you can. Um, Grocery stores hopefully are not going to be as crowded as they have been in the past. But the fact is that it really is up to you. And in this particular case, you're going to have to go back to the good old fashioned hygiene, which is to make sure you've got that hand sanitizer with you and make sure that you've got something that's protective of your respiratory tract, such as a scarf, which we've seen in studies actually has the same ability as like the the blue and yellow masks to be able to prevent droplets from getting inside you. Okay, that's good to know. Another question. Uber and Lyft announced yesterday that they're suspending ride shares or pools. But what about getting into a regular Uber or a Lyft where it's just you and the driver? Is that a good idea? We were doing an exercise in New York City on this just the other day. And and what we found was that uh, walking and biking, best. And then you're going to look at Uber 
as being sort of the next best thing because it's really more of a social isolation. Yes, you're not necessarily three feet away from the driver, but I mean, it's not that big of a deal. And if the driver is wiping down between every guest, that's great. And then you go to, you know, your buses and your subways and then eventually regular cabs because there's no time to be able to wipe down. And then finally ride shares, uh, which you want to pretty much avoid simply because at the end of the, or carpooling, I should say, because when you're carpooling, there's a much greater likelihood that there's going to be a lot of spread because essentially social distancing doesn't apply. Do you have any advice for people when it comes to disinfecting surfaces? Just regular cleaners and disinfectants are fine. Is there any specific ingredient that we should be looking for? Right now, regular soap and water is all you need. And if you want to go higher than that or harder than that, you're fully welcome to do so. Just remember, this virus is what we call an envelope virus. It is surrounded by a layer of lipid or basically fat. And just the same way that you get those grease stains off your plate after having a great meal, you do the same thing, whether it be with your hands, on surfaces, whatever. Soap and water is good enough. And if you don't happen to have soap and water around, disinfectant wipes and alcohol-based hand sanitizers 62 to 70 percent, 15 seconds on your hands, 30 seconds on surfaces, you're good to go. And any other questions that you've been getting about social distancing? I, I guess the only other thing that people have been asking me is when are we going to see the end of all of these measures? And we can look to China as being one possibility. So essentially they locked down on January 22nd. It took almost two months before they were able to reopen. But the fact is that it sort of went wild in China. It was the first time. So I think looking at maybe South Korea as being the optimal example, which is about a month, is probably something that we should be aiming for. But in order for us to get there, we have to be sure that we've got the testing in place. We've got to be sure that the social distancing is in place. And we've got to be absolutely sure that we're doing our part. Because the more that people decide not to listen to social distancing or trying to, you know, get around the system, the longer it's going to take for this curve to essentially drop out and, and we can get back to our normal lives. Okay. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this. Hey, no problem. All right, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. Just a few other things I want to note. Today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced a $27 billion emergency aid package and $55 billion in tax deferrals. And this is all part of the government's effort to help Canadians and businesses survive the economic impact of COVID-19. To help stabilize the economy. Combined, this $82 billion in support represents more than 3% of Canada's GDP. We're going to talk about this more on tomorrow's episode. Also from today, a major update on the U.S.-Canada border. Trudeau and Trump have come to an agreement to restrict non-essential travel between Canada and the U.S. So no more visitors, but in terms of trade and commerce, it'll be business as usual. Our governments recognize that it is critical that we preserve supply chains between both countries. These supply chains ensure that food, fuel, and life-saving medicines reach people on both sides of the border. Supply chains, including trucking, will not be affected by this new measure. That's it for now. I'm Tamara Kendacker, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.